This morning, just think about someone you know, or perhaps if you don't know somebody in this, uh, th- th- with this description, someone you've heard of. Think of someone extremely wealthy. I mean, not just rich. I mean, extremely wealthy. Someone who could just, at, 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 a, at a, a whim, could go afford a $85 million private jet if they wanted to do that. that and that's just the starters. The operating costs much exceed the, the, op, you know, the initial purchase price of one of those things. I'm not saying we should do that. I'm just thinking that that kind of wealth. That's, that's who I want you to think about. And, and if you're like me, you don't have anybody in your family like that. Um, so you've got to think of people outside your family. Now, let's just imagine what would happen if you were to walk up to such a person, assuming that you could walk up to such a person, or that you telephone them, assuming that you could even get through to them, because people like that kind of put a lot of uh, people between um, the average person and themselves, whether that's security or, or their business or whatever. But assuming that we could talk to them, let's say we approach a person with that kind of wealth, and we walked up to them and said, would you please make me an heir? What do you think they would do? If Assuming you could ask them that. Well, most of them would probably just laugh at you. But if they took your request seriously, assuming they didn't think you were just crazy, then they would, like you, they would likely ask you a follow-up question. On what basis do you ask this? How are you claiming uh, or, or asking to be made an heir? They would, they would want you to explain how you would qualify as their heir. Let me just say this. You would have more success at getting Bill Gates or George Soros or the Queen of England to make you an heir as you would have trying to convince God to make you an heir of his kingdom. And I'm using an argument from the lesser to the greater. Bill Gates, George Soros, are more likely to make you an heir of their wealth than God is to make you an heir of his wealth by your own merit. And there's the qualifier. By your own merit. And and what we're going to see today is is that God has made his children. When he saved us, he has made us his heirs. The heaven reality of of what I'm talking about is extremely wonderful. And it, it is uh, exponentially more difficult to become an heir of God than an heir of a human being, a wealthy human being here on earth. But for everyone who has, that God has saved and that God has justified by his grace, he has made them heirs. And that's what we're going to see. And look at, we're going to concentrate on verse 7, but I, I'd like to read it in context. So I'll begin at verse 1 and read through verse 7 of Titus 3. So please follow along with me. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and 
envy, hateful, and hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Notice that last phrase. Heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now I just want to get, paint a little bit of the bigger picture. The, the main idea that, that Paul is painting here, particularly verse, through verses 4 to 7, four, verses 4 to 7 flow is, is really a, a one, one sentence, right? even though I'm divided up into multiple sermons. It's one sentence. It flows together. It's one thought. And so I've, I've uh, outlined this uh, in the past as four radiant gems of God's salvation that magnify His mercy and grace so that we will be people of mercy and grace when we're interacting with those around us. That's the context. We've, we've seen the various radiant gems uh, that He saved us when He manifested His kindness to us. He saved us according to His mercy alone. He saved us by the pouring out of His Spirit upon us. And this morning we're looking at the fact that He saved us to make us heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's what we're going to dig into today. We're going to see the, the gift of being an heir, that it's only by God's grace. We're going to see the blessings of being an heir. And then we're going to see the hope of being an heir. And that's we'll use that kind of outline to follow through uh, this passage. So when we, when we look, in a moment, we'll look at the blessings of being an heir. But before we get there, we, we need to pay attention to the little reminder that Paul provides for us in verse 7, that, that what comes first, the little phrase that says, so that being justified by grace. Really that phrase, being justified by grace. As, as we're going to see in a moment, the, the so that really ties in to being made heirs. It, it reveals the purpose why God saves us. But but Paul, before he gets there, interjects this little phrase, being uh, justified by his grace. It, to, to, to give us a reminder of the fact that, that salvation is a gift, and even the, the, the fact that he makes us an heir is a gift. It's not of ourselves. That everything in Titus 3, 4 to 7 is about God, right? in contrast to how we live. And that's, that's uh, the importance of kind of reading it in context. And so th- this phrase that, that Paul provides for us, being justified by his grace, uh, provides us with the only foundation for being saved and the only foundation for being made an heir of God that is being justified by his grace. And so I just want to touch on this morning, before we talk about being an heir, we want to talk about the ground of being an heir. The, the, how, how is it that God can make someone his heir? And that is through the process of justification. That's our foundation of being an heir. That, that, is, that is really the reason why God can make us an heir, is because he has justified us. Now I want to touch on the the importance of the doctrine of justification. The doctrine of justification uh, touches the very heart and soul of the gospel. And, and you could rightly say 
<clears throat> it's a cornerstone, uh, a cornerstone doctrine for Christianity itself. Uh, regarding justification, the reformer, uh, the Protestant reformer Martin Luther, declared that this article, that is justification, if this article stands, the church stands. If this article collapses, the church collapses. That's how critical the doctrine of justification is to the gospel and to Christianity itself. If justification were to wash out, to be something proved to be not true, then Christianity itself would be proven to be no better than the cult down the street. That's that, and that that is truly accurate. And and Martin Luther says this because justification leads directly to salvation. Without justification, there is no salvation. Without salvation and justification, there is no eternal life. There is no being made an heir of God. As MacArthur Mayhew stated in their Systematic Theology Biblical Doctrine, the doctrine of justification concerns the only way sinful man can be declared righteous in God's sight. Justification is the only way that sinful man can be declared righteous in God's sight. That helps explain why that is so important. The doctrine of justification is very closely related to the idea of righteousness. When we're explaining justification, we, we, it's almost impossible to describe it without talking about righteousness. And in explaining the basis of the close relationship between justification and righteousness, uh, biblical doctrine, again, that's the title of the systematic theology, notes that the Greek words for justification and for righteousness share the same root. Right? So they tie back to the same Greek word. And, and that uh, biblical doctrine notes this, and I'll just quote, to the English reader, the intimate relationship between righteousness and justification may not be as obvious as it would have been to a Greek reader. In the original language of the New Testament, the words righteousness and righteous, justify and justification all come from the same root word. To be justified then simply means to be declared righteous in the sight of God. And we see a bit of the unbreakable relationship between righteousness and justification, even in the context of Titus 3. Uh, look at Titus 3. Look at verse 5, where, he's, where Paul tells us that God saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. So even here, where, where Paul brings up the fact that righteousness is necessary. When God saved us, it wasn't because of righteous things that we have done. Um, his argument flows into verse 7, so that, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So built into Paul's arguments, even here in, in Titus 3, is the fact that, that there's, this, there's this contrast. We try to do deeds of righteousness, but those are not sufficient. Those never meet God's standard. And therefore, he can never save us by those. He can only justify us by grace. Um, Im implied in this argument that he's using, and, and throughout the New Testament, as we talk about ju uh, justification, and even in the Old Testament, implied in this argument is the recognized need for a person to be righteous. You know, we've seen in the last few weeks, we've talked about regeneration and, and um uh, being born again and the need for righteousness. 
But but again, I'll just you point out First Corinthians uh, chapter six verse nine that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. You know, some people ask, well, God, if God is God, <clears throat> and He is, then why can't He just forgive sins? You know, why can't He proverbially just sweep them under the carpet and be done? You know, and just forgive everybody. But the, the reason is, is because even with forgiveness, that does not make one righteous. It simply cancels out the debt. It doesn't establish righteousness. The person still has the character of an unrighteous person. And Paul has said there'll be no unrighteous person in the kingdom of God. No unrighteous person will enter heaven. No unrighteous person will dwell with God in eternity. No unrighteous person can have fellowship with God even now. The unrighteous person can claim to have fellowship with God. There are plenty of religious people who claim fellowship with God, but but according to First John five uh, verses six, First John chapter one verses five to six, the apostle John tells us that that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, that's that's talking about sinning or living a life of unrighteousness. If we walk in the darkness, we lie. And do not practice the truth. So that's that's God's diagnosis, not mine. So Paul sets the contrast for us here in, in Titus 3. Will a man be justified by deeds of righteousness? Or will a man be justified by God's grace? Well, obviously Paul sets the account very clear. It's not by deeds of righteousness that we have done, but by His grace. And, and Scripture um, is very clear about uh, reinforcing this, about how to answer this question. Uh, we've already mentioned Titus 3.5, not by deeds done in righteousness, but Romans 3.20, because by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. So there is no one who is good enough that, that does good enough deeds uh, from, from womb to tomb that justifies God allowing them into heaven based on their own works. No one. Uh, Galatians 3.11 says, Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. Paul is saying it's evident. You know this. You not only know this from the word of God, you know it from your life. Right? There's no one out there who is, who is good in the sense of the standard of God. Right? We know good people. We know, we know even no unbelievers who, who live like good people in the human earthly sense. But when God examines their heart, right, they are not good by his standard. They have fallen short of the glory of God. And Psalm 130 verse 3 tells us of the outcome of God's decision if he were to judge us by our thoughts, our words, our attitudes and actions. See, God looks on the inside, not just on the exterior actions. And, and there in Psalm 130, 130 verse 3, the psalmist says, if you, Yahweh, the one who, who always is, the one who can peer into our lives and see everything, if you, Yahweh, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? That is, if the Lord were to examine your life, examine any person's life, carefully looking for sin, would anybody pass the test? And the obvious answer is no. No one would pass the test. It's a rhetorical question. Uh, none would be declared righteous in in the in the exam room of God's judgment. 
So Psalm 130 verse 4 tells us the solution to the dilemma. If, if man will, cannot pass the, the test of God's judgment, how will we pass? He says, but there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. There is forgiveness with God, for that we rejoice. But how will man be judged by God to be righteous before the bar of his ju- justice? So, a, I want to dig a little bit deeper into the meaning of justification. Because we need to see that, that in justification, God not only provides forgiveness, but there's, he provides us the righteousness of Christ. It's a, it's a, it's a, um, um, a justification that in, it kind of dual prong, two, two facets to it. Now, a common misunderstanding that we need to be wary of or stay away from uh, of justification, that it means to make upright or to make righteous. To make righteous. This misunderstanding results from confusing justification with other doctrines, particularly sanctification and glorification. The Roman Catholic uh, Church and its doctrine um, confuses the issue of justification with sanctification. And they define justification as God making someone righteous, making someone righteous in the sense of of practical living. So they see justification at the end of uh, a person's life, and that's why they're so uncertain about salvation through their whole life here, because they don't know whether in the end God will justify them, whether they will be righteous enough to be declared that they are really righteous. So that's why even the Pope himself, according to Roman Catholic theology, has no assurance of salvation. So they they put justification at the end. But Scripture does something different. And I'm going to show you. I've repeatedly told you don't trust, um, listen to what's being said, but don't trust it just because I'm saying it. Take it to the Word of God. The Bible typically uses the word justification in a narrow technical sense, not to mean to make righteous, but to declare righteous. The Bible relates justification to a legal declaration rather than a change that makes someone righteous. The, the, the change that makes someone righteous, that's, that's sanctification. And in the end, that's glorification. At the moment of your death or the moment Christ returns, God instantly makes you like him. When we see him, we'll be made to be like him. So that's the making part. God does make us righteous, but but that's not justification. Justification is a declaration of righteousness. So I want I want to prove this to you from the text, from the Word of God. Um, and you can either turn to these passages or listen to them. The first one I'm going to uh, draw our attention to is in Deuteronomy 25, verse one. Deuteronomy 25, verse one. There, Moses is laying out the law, providing the law. For the Israelites, as they go into the get ready to go into the land, they would need a a civil law in order to uh, run their government, to run their nation, to know how to operate, to know what's right and what's wrong. They were not to go by the laws of the land. Uh, God strictly forbade that. In Deuteronomy twenty-five one, uh, there there Moses writes, "If there is a dispute between men and they go to court." And the judges decide their case, 
and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. And then it goes on to talk about what punishment would be meted out for those who are condemned. Here's what I want you to see from this. Notice there's a dispute between men. They go to court. Judges hear their case and make a decision. Right? Notice the words that are used. They, meaning the judges, they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. In other words, they examine the evidence, look at who is guilty, condemn that person as wicked, and the person, the other person is declared to be righteous. In other words, they, 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 they were in the right. But the word there is justify. It is a legal term. The context is strictly a, a courtroom type settings, clearly from the Old Testament. The, the judge justifies the righteous person. Now let's go to the New Testament and see something similar. Matthew uh, 12. <clears throat> Matthew 12. This is a um, statement of Jesus. Matthew 12, verse 35. <clears throat> Excuse me, the verse 35. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. And the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Similar scenario. Only this is not an earthly court. This is a heavenly court. This is God looking at a person's life. And, and here, Jesus is just pointing out the words. He's not, you know, here he could, he could draw in attitudes and actions and all this. All this is just, this is just zeroing in on one area of a person's life, your speech. Your speech. And he's saying, if by your words, if God examines you by your words, if you're perfect in your speech, then you will be declared, you will be justified. That is, declared to be righteous. But, if your words don't meet God's standard, you will be condemned. That, that's the context here. If, if a person hasn't said anything careless, wrong, or sinful, then that person will be justified by their words. God would look at their words. And, and, and they, by that, they would be judged righteous. But if a person has said anything, even one careless word, one wrong or sinful word, that person will be condemned. The judge will declare the person to be unrighteous and condemn them. And, and notice the judge doesn't make someone righteous. He doesn't, he doesn't make someone guilty or unrighteous. This is the judge just looking at a person's life and deciding. In one case, in the Old Testament case, it was an earthly courtroom. In, the, in this case, Jesus is talking about a heavenly courtroom. Let's move to another passage. Romans chapter 2, verse 13. Here, Paul says, it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So in this text, Paul is envisioning, again, God as judge who examines people for obedience to the law of Moses. If someone hears the law of Moses, they're hearing it, they're, they're, they're like in, the, in, the, in this context, they, they would have been like in the temple, they would have been in uh, the synagogue, like on a, on a regular basis, hearing the word of God, but they just let it go in one ear and out the other. They don't worry about any obedience. So that's, that's, <clears throat> that's the scenario that's being envisioned here. So if someone hears the law but doesn't obey it, that person is going to be condemned because they didn't obey it. But if someone does the law, he will be justified. So Paul's using a, a theoretical courtroom scenario 
to say that if there were someone that obeyed the law, then God would declare them righteous. And that's a true statement. If someone could obey the law of God, God would declare them righteous based on that standard. But we know that nobody has met that standard. And therein lies a great problem for us. There's another passage I want to show you uh, from Luke. And I'm going to ask you to turn to this one. Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. And I'm going to read verses 9 to 14. This is the a parable that Jesus told about the Pharisee and what's called the, the publican or the, or, the one, or the sinner. So verse 9, Luke 18. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. Notice he's praying to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner of his parable. Jesus concludes, I tell you that this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. That parable isn't primarily about prayer. What's that parable about? It's about the basis by which we make any kind of claim on heaven. This The, the Pharisee was, was looking at all he had done. And, and we see that in verse 9, we're even told that the as Luke wrote this, he told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Right? There are people who trust in their own righteousness. You might even know some today. They trust in, in what they're doing. Right? They, might, they might acknowledge their need to, to go to church. They might acknowledge their, their need to read the Word of God. They might acknowledge their need to go to Mass. But in the end, their trust is, is in their own righteous deeds. That one's not going to be justified, Jesus says, in the judgment of God. Who's going to be justified? The one who pleads for mercy. The one who says, I'm a sinner. I've broken the law. I'm guilty. I'm worthy of hell. I'm worthy of your judgment. But God, have mercy. I've heard you're a God of grace and mercy. Have mercy. And Jesus says that one, that man, will go to his home justified. Again, that, there's no change in the man. It's, it's a legal declaration of God. Justification it is used typically within context of Scripture. And you have to look at each one carefully. It's used with the idea of a legal declaration and not a transformation. God does transform us, as I said. He transforms all those who, who turn to Christ in faith. But again, that's not justification. That's sanctification. You can make a case it's glorification. So trans, the, this transformation begins at regeneration, begins at the moment of 
your salvation. It continues progressively in sanctification. It's completed in the believer's glorification. Again, when you when you die or when Jesus returns, whatever happens first. But justification, biblically, is God's legal declaration. And, and that's what Martin Luther um, was so willing to, to even die for because it's critical to the gospel. You see, justification, and let's go back to Titus, Titus uh, chapter 3. Justification, as Paul notes here, is by God's grace. By his grace. Notice the past tense there in, in Titus uh, 3.7 that's used there. He saved us being justified by his grace. You can just look through the string of, of verbs. They're, they're past tense verbs. So, so Paul is talking to Christians and he's telling them about their past and he's saying God saved you and then verse 7 being justified by his grace. It, it, it's a done deal. The, the declaration is not justifying you. No, it's not in the process. This is a past action of God. And, and it's even um, written in, in that passive voice sense there where he says that being justified is not something we do to ourselves. God does it for us. So it's his work. Um, we see this in other passages of Scripture. For example, in Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, there Paul says, For we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. It's impossible to be justified by your own works. But God makes justification possible through faith in Jesus Christ, and he does the justifying. Now, I want us to understand something from Romans 4. So if you would turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. How does God justify the ungodly? We can understand how God would justify someone who is righteous. You know, he could look at their life, and if their life was perfect, he would declare them righteous. But, but look at verses 4 and 5 of Romans 4. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Look at that phrase. That, that God, God who justifies the ungodly. So there's a, a Mike Jenrin who has a ministry to Catholics um, says it's a good verse to remember and you can remember it by remembering that the Colt 45 helped tame the Wild West. Right. So Romans 45 can help tame those who think that justification is that God declares the righteous. Righteous. Now God declares the ungodly righteous. Take a Roman Catholic there and let them let ponder that. How does God declare righteous someone who is not yet transformed but ungodly? 
especially when we consider verses like this. Proverbs 17.15 says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them are alike, are an abomination to the Lord, to Yahweh. So if you if you take a, a, a wicked man and declare him righteous in, in, a, in an earthly court, you're, you're an abomination to God. And, and then Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So in light of that, how can God take the ungodly and declare them righteous? Well, we're going to answer that by again turning to Romans, Romans 3. And look at verse, we're going to begin at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and that the world may become accountable to God. In other words, like he says in verse 20, because of the works of the law, no flesh will be justified on his side. In the courtroom of God, every single soul, their mouths will be shut. Right? Here they'll, they'll talk about all the good things they did, but before God, all of that gets washed away. They will be silent. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now look at verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace, the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what is he saying? God can declare the ungodly righteous because of what Jesus Christ has done. God has not become ungodly in his judgment. He hasn't declared the person, uh, the ungodly righteous, uh, just on a whim because he wants to, he can do that because of something that Christ has done. Christ has propitiated the, the, our sins. He has satisfied the wrath of God uh, and he has paid the price for our sins. There's something significant going on and, and it's crystallized for us in Second Corinthians 5.21 where it says, he made him, that is God, made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There's this dual transaction. The Lord removing, forgiving, the Lord giving righteousness. Uh, we see this crystallized in, in Romans 5. If you're still in Romans, turn to Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulations bring about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That is why God can take the ungodly and declare him righteous because Christ died for the ungodly. And he adds there, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. 
But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, shall we be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if, while we were enemies, we are reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So, through Christ, by faith, he takes our sins upon him. Right? That's what he did on the cross. He took our sins on the cross, died for our sins, And when you exercise saving faith, your sins are placed upon Christ. When Christ died, he knew about you and your sins, all of them. He died for all of them. And when he died, uh, he then rose in newness of life because he fully paid the price. But in faith, you not only get forgiveness through Christ, him having paid the penalty for your sins, but you get the righteousness of Christ. You see why striving for righteousness in a work sense is so futile. Because through faith, we get perfect righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. There is no higher standard than God himself. So understand, beloved, that justification is the work of God of forgiving our sins and giving us the righteousness of Christ. That can only come by Faith in Christ, that faith not even is not even of yourselves. It's a gift of God, so you would not boast. But it's, that justification is a grace act of God. He doesn't have to do it. He chose to do it. You couldn't earn it. And, and God gets all the credit. He justifies all those who exercise faith in Christ, who call upon the name of the Lord. I spent enough, a lot of time here in the, in the message to develop that because justification is so important for us to understand. So we, this is, the, this is the, the gift of being an heir. You must be justified or you'll never be an heir. If you're justified, you are an heir. And, and now we just want to turn a little bit in the, in the message and, and see the point two, which is, which is the, the blessing of being an heir. A blessing of being an heir. Now, when you hear the word heir, you probably associate with that with someone who receives property from an ancestor, like what I was in my illustration in the very beginning of the message. You inherit some form of property, and and that is a a good way to understand it. But remember that being an heir can refer to more than just uh, someone who receives property. It can refer to someone who who inherits or is entitled to to uh, succeed a, a hereditary rank, title, or office. It isn't necessarily like the tangibles. Sometimes there's intangibles as well that the person receives. And we often associate inheritance with the death of the one we, who we inherited it from. You know, when you receive an inheritance from your, from your parents, it's typically at their death or when they're getting very old and, and close to death. But we need to be careful here. When the Bible calls us heirs, and especially when when it talks about Christ being an heir, we need to be careful not to automatically apply the earthly concept of, of an heir and, and associated with uh, the death of, of the person who was uh, bequeathed that whatever they have um, to you. We need to be careful not to import that to the New Testament. And Leon Morris uh, tells, us, tells us this, or warns us about this. And I'll just quote him. He says, uh, in the term heir, there is no thought of entering into possession 
through death of a, of a testator. That is someone who, who passes these things down. In the New Testament, the word and its cognates, that is the related words, are often used in a sense much like get possession of without reference to any specific way of acquiring the property in question. In other words, the term points to lawful possession without indicating in what way the possession is secured, unquote. So understand what he's saying. He's saying that it, when God makes you an heir, you get possession of, of what he gives without his death, right? which should be impossible. God can't die. So that's where we that's where the analogy, the human analogy kind of breaks down. And so too, when when Christ is spoken of an heir, it is too received as a possession of without the death of anyone else. So now when we talk about God making us heirs, we need to see that this is where God's grace accelerator. That's, that's my analogy. God's grace accelerator gets slammed to the floorboard. All the fuel gets flowing to the engine and the thing just takes off. Uh, like a rocket. Uh, to use another analogy, it's where the doors of God's rich blessings get kicked wide open for you. Now think about this. Not only are your sins forgiven, not only are you given the righteousness of God, but, but look at, if you go back to, to Titus 3, what does he say? What does he tell us? Titus 3. He says that God saved us so that, that's the purpose, so that he would be what? We would be made heirs. So God God saved us and he justified us to make us heirs. What is an heir? An heir has possession of everything that is that that is owned by the person who, who made him an heir. This this is absolutely just wonderful. Uh, realize the word the word heir uh, certainly can pertain to a human like a human relationship. And here here I'm just I want to probe a little bit. How do how do how can we be made heirs? It's not through anything biological is is what we need to see from this. An heir is is an heir because of a relationship. There is a relationship that that establishes that the fact that you are an heir. And in this sense, even even there is even the Son of God is called an heir. Um, we'll dig deeper later in, in future messages. I'll be doing some messages on the Trinity. So we're going to dig into this a bit deeper. But, but God reveals himself uh, as Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He is he, the Father, the one God, three persons. And that the, the Father has revealed himself as the Father and the Son has revealed himself as the Son. Why did they take these titles? There's significant relationship to that. Why does God describe himself this way as Father and as the Son, the Son of God? It's not anything biological. This is a theological designation, and so we'll dig dig more into that. But I, but I wanted to preface, I wanted to give you that before before I read a verse in uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, where it says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. 
So the Father has appointed the Son, His Son, the Son of God, as heir of all things. Now, keep in mind, the Son of God has always been the Son of God, even if there were no incarnation. Again, we'll dig more into that uh, in a future message. But Christ is an heir of God. Think about what what the Scriptures are, are telling us. That and MacArthur kind of points out that if Jesus is the Son of God, and he is, then he is the heir of all God possesses. Everything that exists will find its true meaning only when it comes under the final control of Jesus Christ. He, he owns it all, everything, everything created, heaven and earth, and all they contain. And, and that's a fulfillment of, of Psalm 2. You can look that up. We won't take time to do that right now. Jesus is the heir of all things. And that he is heir of all things is fitting and right and understandable. What is surprising is that God makes us heirs, not in the same sense of Christ, right? So we never are made like God. You'll find false teachers that tell you you're God-like, right? You are made in the image of God, and that's as close as you'll come. Um, You are not little gods, but you are sons of God. You're children of God. And you are made an heir through faith in Jesus Christ. So that's shocking. Right? Perhaps you've read over that and not been shocked by it. Right? But again, use the analogy I used at the beginning. God of the universe, much richer than Bill Gates or George Soros, all the rich people combined, and rich in ways beyond the, just the monetary stuff has made you an heir of his kingdom. He's made you an heir. How gracious is that? You know, God offers forgiveness. God offers righteousness. God offers his kingdom to all who believe. And yet still people trample on the good grace of God and ignore his gift. You know, Paul wants us to know here in Titus 3 that when God saves someone, he makes them an heir. And and notice, like the word justified, that we would be made heirs is written in a passive voice, not something we do. God has to do it. And he does it by his grace, only by his grace. And notice, too, that that the way that it's written, he says in verse 7, he says, by his grace, we would be made heirs, not that we will be made heirs, that we would be. In other words, it's past tense. It's done at the moment of your salvation. When you're, when you're saved, you are justified. When you're justified, you're made an heir. That moment, an heir. So understand and, and tie this in together with, with the first phrase of verse 7 so that, just point out, this is the purpose why God saved us. There's more than one purpose, but this is the purpose that he points out in this passage, that God saved us so that he would make us heirs. He would make us heirs. Now, now Paul doesn't develop the theological concept of being made an heir. So in the time we have, I just want to kind of give you a a high summary of this. Um, We are made heirs of God when we become children of God. Remember that relationship is uh, con- the concept of relationship is important in understanding 
um, how someone is made in the air. And, and it seems that the Bible uses two different analogies to describe how we become children of God. One that we've talked about a lot is that we are made children of God through the new birth, through regeneration, through being born again. And there's many passages that talk about this. First John 1 12 and first John 3 9 talk about being born of God, born above, and Jesus' uh, talk with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. But then the second analogy that Scripture uses tells us this, that we are made to be children of God through adoption. Through adoption. Uh, for example, Romans 8.15 says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit, a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So when God made you an heir, so God made you an heir when, when he, through faith, through your faith in Jesus Christ, he adopted you and he caused you to be born again. Both those things are true. God made you an heir at your salvation. Um, and, and there's many passages that, that talk about this. For example, Galatians 4, verses 6 and 7. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his heart, um, spirit of his heart, Spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Romans 8, verses 16 and 17. For the spirit testifies within our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may be glorified with him. Do you understand that? We're heirs of God, co-heirs. That's what that's what Paul says in Romans 8. Co-heirs, fellow heirs with Christ. So if Christ possesses all, he is willing to share that inheritance with us. That's the rich blessings. Ephesians 3, 6. That Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. James 2.5 says, Listen, my beloved brethren, did, God, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those in love? So when we talk about being an heir, what, do you, what, do you, what are you an heir of? Right? Right? Eternal life. The kingdom of God. All that Christ possesses. And, and while most Bible teachers would point all these things out, just as I have, I think the greatest blessing is not in the things. When we think about being made an heir, or we think about inheritance, we think about things. And it's not wrong, but I want you to see how rich God is. It's not the things that are our greatest blessing. Right? The world, the heavens, if we inherit all that, that's not the greatest blessing. Streets of gold, not the greatest blessing. What's the greatest blessing? Being made an heir means you are related to Christ. You're related to God. And your relationship to God is far more valuable than things. Because that God, the God of the world, he can speak things into being. Things are nothing, in a sense, because he can make them out of nothing. That God has saved you. That God has justified you. That God has made you a son or daughter of God. Made you an heir. Which is why, and I'll just jump ahead here, 
This is why he talks about, in Titus 3, being made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So you are an heir now, though you do not see it. You don't experience it in, in, in many ways. You just, you just don't visualize it. it. It's true. It's a present reality. But nobody is going to walk up to you and say, oh, you look like an heir of God. There's not. Might look beautiful that day or handsome that day, but no one's going to walk up to you and say that. So it, it is something that's true, but it hasn't been consummated. It hasn't been fully realized yet. And that's why Paul points here to, to the hope of being an heir. That, that he says, um, he says there that we are to, we are being, we are made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, some Bible translations and commentators, um, kind of connect the idea of eternal, of, of the being an heir with the idea of eternal life. But I think the New American Standard Bible got it right by translating it, being made an heir according to the hope of eternal life. The phrase um, according to uh, means corresponding to or in alignment with. What is Paul saying? How, how, in what way should we associate being made an heir with, with the, with eternal life, with the hope of eternal life? Well, on one hand, eternal life is a present possession of everyone who is saved. Okay, so if you're saved today, you have eternal life. Lots of scriptures for that. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Present tense, have eternal life. John 3, 36. He who believes in the son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. John 10, verses uh, verse, um they're looking at particularly at verses 27 and 28. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So it's a present reality. Lots of verses like that. So eternal life on the one hand is a present reality. On the other hand, eternal life will be fully realized in the future. In this life, our bodies still die, right? And will continue to die. Lord will raise them up in the end, but we do not have fully realized eternal life. For example, Scripture uses it in this sense. For example, in Romans six, uh, verses twenty-two and twenty-three. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. So, there, eternal life is viewed as a as a future event, as a future gift. 1 Timothy 6.12 says, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession. And he says, take hold of eternal life. He's talk, Paul's talking to Timothy. Timothy is saved. He's not talking about the present reality of salvation. He's talking about persevering to the end to take hold of the prize of that full realization of eternal life. Uh, we see this idea as well in Jude, uh, verses 20 and 21. But you, beloved building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. So that kind of anxiety is not sinful. It's waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. So there, eternal life is viewed as a, pre, as a future gift. It's a present reality in one sense, one sense, but it's a future gift in another sense. And in, in the full sense of the word and we'll receive that 
when we are um, glorified, receive our glorified bodies. Now, just let me probe a little bit with you according to this idea of hope, right? Because we so infuse that with our own understanding, our earthly understanding of hope. Uh, biblical hope is, is very different than the colloquial use of the word hope, that we, how we use it today. For example, I, I can say, uh, I hope we don't get any more snow this winter. Um, to express a, a desire, a wish, but that wish may not be based on reality, and I really haven't checked the forecast, so I don't know whether that's a, you know, a possibility or not. It's, it's uncertain is what I'm saying. So we use the word hope with a lot of uncertainty. And it's okay to do that because how our society uses that, but that's not how the Bible uses the word hope. Um, when the Bible uses the word hope, uh, typically it means, uh, the context will indicate this, but it, it's typically based on something God has promised and therefore becomes a confident expectation. So the hope is not not something that's uncertain. Biblical hope is certain, although we do not see it now, it's certain because it's based on the promises of God. And, and, and since God cannot lie, he cannot be unfaithful, he cannot fail to keep his word, he will always keep his promises. And therefore we can be confident that, it, that it's going to happen. We don't know the timing on, on many of those promises. He will work out the timing, but we can be confident that it will happen. Okay? No doubt. Okay? You must not doubt. So that's the way that hope is used. For example, in 824, uh, Romans 824 says, For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. So that's the idea of hope. Waiting eagerly. Waiting eagerly. It's coming, beloved. The, the realization of eternal life, that, that's coming. The, the realization that you're an heir of God and co-heir with Christ, that's, that's coming. That's not something we can, we can see right now, but it's coming. Romans 15.4 says, For whatever is written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. So what is that passage doing? It's taking us back to what is written. What is written gives us clear evidence of what God promised. And because of that, because of that encouragement of the Scriptures, we can have hope, that confident expectation. God has made you an heir in the similar way that he has given you eternal life. It's, it's a present reality, but it's not fully realized. But, but it will be. But it will be, beloved. And, and um, I just want to point out one thing in closing. I want to turn to Romans 8. Love this passage, and when I start reading, I have to read the whole thing because it's just so blessed, um, so rich, so full. Verse 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who called according to his purpose. Certainly, that describes someone who's saved, that describes someone who's justified, that describes someone who has been made an heir. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? 
Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is the right hand of God and also intercedes for us. So he's using the argument. He's saying God's the highest judge. He's declared you righteous. Who can overrule him? Who can declare you condemned? Christ Jesus is he who died. Christ paid that. You're, you're condemn- there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hey, none. And, and then he builds on that. And he, and he says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, just as it is written, for you, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things come, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Made an heir, always an heir. No one can change that status. And God himself won't change that status. Because to change someone's status as an heir would say, oh, I made a mistake. And God doesn't make any mistakes. All his decisions are perfect, made with full knowledge of everything and based on the solid rock, the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Unshakable. It's an unshakable foundation, an unshakable decision by an unshakable God. That's what he does. And why does he do this? Think about the bigger context of Titus. Titus talks a lot about good works. He doesn't want you to get confused when when he's telling you to do good works. Those things don't contribute to you being an heir. You're an heir, and therefore God has made you an heir, and therefore an ambassador. Therefore, live like God wants you to live. Live as an ambassador of that grace and mercy. You've received so much grace, so much mercy. Then if you look at verse 8, just to kind of jump ahead in, in Titus, you see it, Titus 3, 3, 8. This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. Okay? Go do it. Be God's ambassador. Be ambassador of grace, of his mercy. Okay? Not because you're trying to earn something, but because you've received something. Okay? Not because you're trying to be somebody because of who God has made you to be. His heir. Fully justified. Fully saved. Go and live that way. That's, that's what he's telling us. He's motivating us to be um, instruments through which God's mercy and grace gets poured out to others. Let's pray. Oh God, um, we are just blown away by the magnitude of your grace and mercy. And I just thank you so much for your um, just immense um, work in our lives. Thank you for the grace and mercy which you have poured down upon us. and Just through Christ our Lord, through your spirit, through all that you are, Lord, we just thank you, praise you, and exalt you. Lord, what a, what a blessing that you have given us saving us and justifying us and making us heirs with confident expectation of the fact that that heirship will be fully realized and that eternal life will be fully realized because it's all based on your promises, your word. Oh Lord, as we um, 
just reflect upon the life and death and resurrection of Christ our Lord on our behalf. Lord, I just ask that you would examine our hearts as we celebrate communion this morning, that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that you would just uh, do the work that you need to do in our lives, examining us, and Lord God, just helping us to, to trust um, in Christ and in Christ alone. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying on the cross for our sins and, and bearing the wrath of God for our sins, taking that punishment which we deserve. Help us to rightly celebrate you as we celebrate uh, communion today in the, in the cup and in the bread, just um, being reflections and remembrances of what you have done. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.